So welcome back to One on One with ANZ, which is our recurring clubhouse show on Monday nights, um, where at least most 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 times we uh, answer uh, questions submitted by the wonderful people on Twitter, um, who once again this week have not disappointed and have given us a whole series of, of incredibly interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will uh, go until about eight o'clock, um, and we will dive right in. So. Um, I've got a run of questions here that Ben's going to start out answering, and then I'll let him off the hook about halfway through, and I'll start on the second half. But we'll start starting the deep end with Ben. So, uh, so Ben Farrow asks, uh, I'd love to hear thoughts on the sort of modern version um, of Hollywood and Silicon Valley converging. Um, specifically, uh, two sub questions: um, How are uh, blockchain, NFTs, and tokenization? Uh, changing the art business and the media industry, and where do we think that can go uh, in terms of Hollywood and other other forms of entertainment? And then, uh, related, we come back to this, but are you or would you invest in artists or in IP as a startup, given these changes? Right. Okay. Now, great questions. Um, yeah, there are big changes, I think, happening um, you know, in media and in Hollywood due to due to the new technologies and, um, you know, kind of, I, I would kind of say the changes are principally across funding, uh, distribution and ownership. And so if we just take kind of the music industry as an example, um, the music industry currently has this, it's kind of like, uh, Mark, a, a Warren Buffett type special instrument that they right. use to invest in artists, which is they use a kind of debt model with a massive equity kicker. So basically the way it works is, um, you know, the record company pays the artist in advance, and that advance is recoupable, so it's debt. So the, once the artist earns enough money, it all goes back to the record label until the debt is paid down. But even after the debt is paid down, uh, the the record company gets um, basically equity, a big equity cut, like between 50 and 90%, depending on the deal. Um, and then finally, the record company owns the underlying IP known as the master. So if there's, you know, something that uh, somebody wants to license that music or whatever, um, then that also, you know, those rights go back to the, the record company, not to the artist. So that's kind of the, the current state. So if you think about, okay, well, what can NFTs do? And, and there's pretty interesting things because a lot of that, that, that value that they get is for distributing music, but distributing music has been, you know, greatly commoditized through streaming. So if you kind of have an instrument like an NFT, an artist could, you know, potentially um, create an NFT that represented a song um, and then attach the rights to the streaming revenue to the NFT. So as a fan or an investor, you could buy equity in that song. You could buy a fraction of the NFT, and uh, it would just send you the money, um, you know, as the song sold. And then the artist uh, wouldn't have any debt, and they would retain ownership of the underlying intellectual property. And uh, if you know somebody else wanted to cover their song, they'd have all those rights, so they could decide what they wanted to do there. So it'd be, you know, it's a pretty massive change to the industry structure. Um, that's potentially going to happen. Um, and then similarly, if you look at something like visual art, um, you know, you can just take, you know, take any artist, John michel Basquiat, who's, you know, his painting sell for $100 million, but not when he sold them. <laughs> you know, when he sold them, they were probably more like a few thousand dollars. And all the money that was made from his genius was made by collectors and brokers, not by him. And so one thing, you know, on the other hand, if you kind of fast forward to the modern world and you say, okay, well, what if that was an NFT, then, okay, he could actually retain um, a percentage of all future sales of his art. And that would enable, you know, as he grew in reputation as an artist and so forth, he would actually get the economic benefit um, as opposed to, you know, the auction house or or whatever. And, um, you know, that... It's a really amazing change, I think, in that we're going from a place where the value and look, this has happened in almost every creative industry where the value, um, whether you're a writer or a visual artist or a musician, um, the value has gone to the distribution company, which, you know, tend to be monopolies or oligopolies, you know. Things like, uh, you know, the newspaper industry with, you know, a few very big, powerful 
newspaper chains or the record industry with the with the major labels and so forth, um, and not to the creative. And then those businesses, worse yet, get inherited by people um, who get all the money, uh, even though they don't create any new value. And so this is a huge shift going to the people who create the value. Uh, and I think what it means for creatives is we're going to, you know, the number of people who can pursue their creative interests is going to multiply by probably thousands because, you know, now, and there, there's a great piece um, called, you know, a thousand true fans. And you can be a creative if you have a thousand true fans in the modern world, you know, with the new distribution and ownership model. And, um, you know, on top of that, the, you know, the ones who do succeed will retain much more ownership than they ever did and, uh, and you know, get the, get the value that they create. So I, I feel like there's been a bug in our capitalistic system where all this money's gone to, you know, people who inherit the New York Times or whatever uh, instead of the people creating the value. And so that's going to be a great and positive thing. Um, on the second question, um, would we invest in artists or IP as a startup? I would say um, we are actually looking at, uh, you know, IP in the form of NFTs now and whether we should, you know, invest directly in NFTs. I can say from our investigation, it's a very different kind of business than we've been doing. Um, on the other hand, from a philosophical standpoint, we are 100% on the side of people who create new and valuable things and 100% the enemy of people who try and graft all the money off of them through their monopolistic positions that they inherited. So it's very, very tempting in that it it's very in line with our kind of view of the universe. Uh, but um, great question. Well, then what about, and not, you know, not to put you or us on the spot on this, but like, what about, like, for example, what if there was a new form of, let's say, an artist collective? Um, or let's yeah. say there was like, you know, imagine that there might be like a Y Combinator for artists who are going to, uh, you know, produce NFTs. Like, is that, does, does, does the sort of NFT revolution like make those businesses potentially look like they're more of the kind of thing that VCs historically have funded? Or do you think that they'll still be more like, you know, kind of content businesses have been in the past? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it, it's not clear yet, but I think that, uh, I think that they potentially could be, and they could be very interesting, you know, particularly given the change in the way these things are distributed, because it, you know, as you and I have discussed often, you know, our great entrepreneurs, and, and, you know, one of the reasons, um, you know, I have a lot of friends who are artists and musical artists in particular, you know, they're very similar type of characters, uh, you know, people who kind of create companies and, and create art. And so, those, you know, in, in one ways, I do feel like there are people and if there is an economic model that works, it doesn't go to the distribution company, then that would be um our kind of thing. So I, I think it's definitely possible. Yep. And then how broadly, and I guess there's actually two dimensions, two dimensions of broadness. So one is like, how broadly across different forms of media do we think this might run? And I guess, you know, you already alluded to like music and art and maybe, uh, you know, literature. Uh, but like, how, how many different forms of media do we think this could do? And then, the, of course, the other question on sort of broadness is like, is this for like the top 100 artists in a field or the top 1,000 or the top 10,000 or, or, or beyond? Yeah, so it's, I, I think it's way beyond the top 10,000. And that's um, one of the things that's so exciting is that, you know, when you give up, like, like if you look at the economics of um, the old school music industry, and one of the reasons why <laughs> you, you probably mostly listen to really old music, Mark, <laughs> is yeah, that the, the music industry kind of got screwed up because you needed, like, for an artist to get to their second, third album, they need to be like a platinum selling artist. So it was only the very, very top few. And then, you know, everybody was kind of made to sound like each other. There, you know, the originality started to to fade quite a bit because the kind of bar to, you know, kind of getting paid back the way they they, they work the economic model um, was just tough. Uh, if you go to, well, the artist, like the person who has to get paid is the artist, not like all of the I mean, music company executives have like $15 million a year salaries and like just crazy, like very highly paid, I would just say. 
And so, you know, if you move that money back to the artists and my brother and I, my brother's in the kind of, he uh, runs a great music management company. Um, you know, he always said, look, if I have a band that can sell a thousand tickets, <laughs> um, they can earn a living in the music business. And I think right. that's going to, you know, kind of reduce down to a thousand fans. You, you don't even necessarily have to sell those tickets in a, in a, in a town. Um, it's just a thousand total who will yep. buy your stuff and, and so on. And we're seeing that on Substack, right? Like if a Substack yep. writer has a thousand, uh, subscribers, they're a $60,000 a year business. Yep. Um, that's like pretty good for writing, you know, I mean, yep. just as a start with a thousand, you know, you get 10,000, yep. you're $600,000 a year. And so it's, yep. it's that kind of thing. And, and I think that's true for music. It's probably going to be true for everything for, you know, visual art, for poetry, for magic, for, you know, any kind of thing that you would do in as an artistic en endeavor. And you look, there's still the uh, potential to go hyperbolic um, and even more so in some ways, but I think there'll just be a lot more people kind of uh, playing. And, um, and I think that, you know, I, I think that'll be a much better world for all of us. You know, the other dimension, I, I guess, is, is geographic, right? Which is like, so for, for performing arts, for example, you know, there, there have always been like aficionados, right? And so if you were lucky enough to be in like, I don't know, New York City or something in the like 50s and 60s, you could go to the Village Vanguard you know, every night and, and, you know, kind of listen to all the jazz musicians. Then there've always been patrons, right? Of so like whatever the New York yeah. Philharmonic and the New York Ballet and so forth always had, you know, patrons, um, you know, who, who would donate and support these programs. But it was sort of like those, all those things would have been like isolated to people in New York uh, or, or like, yeah. you know, the up and coming yeah. art galleries, right? And, and like downtown New York, like if you're in New York, you can participate in that world. But if you're not, it just was not available. So the yeah. total universe of sort of early customers, buyers, patrons, you know, audience, like, um, you know, subscribers to all these new forms of art, were necessarily basically only people who happen to be in those cities. Right. Um, you know, that's such a great um, observation because right now everybody can be like the painter in Florence <laughs> during the Renaissance or the, right. yeah, exactly. That, that's a great point of the jazz, jazz artist in, in New York. Yeah, so you're 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 thousand, and it's actually kind of funny. I mean, you know, look, I mean, we're even doing a micro version of it tonight in Clubhouse. But like, if you think about, it, I don't forget how many when we started, we had 20, 2,800 people in the audience, and it's like, you know, how do you even conceive of twenty eight hundred people? And it's like, well, you know, one way to think about like twenty eight hundred people in like a concert hall would actually be a pretty large number number of people. Yeah. <laughs> right, and like not that easy to assemble, um, you know, for like a talk or a lecture. Um, yeah. And so, right. And, and and us too as semi interesting creatives we're doing pretty great uh, yeah yeah like i don't know we're if, in we business. Like rent, if we rent, if we had rented out like a community performing arts center in palo alto and said we're going to do q a for an hour i don't know that we would get 2800 people so um it, it's a uh, yeah no it's a uh, yeah it's going to be really really interesting as this stuff goes yeah as this stuff goes yeah i think this is sort of the unanticipated sort of uh, payoff uh from this yeah. like virtual i think it may be the you know the most exciting thing going on in the kind of global economy is is the ability to unlock um, that many people being able to pursue a life that they want and yeah. earn a really solid living off it. I mean, that, that that's such a transformation. It's hard to even imagine like what the implications will be. Yep. Yep. Okay, good. Fantastic. And then uh, go, go to our second and, you know, sort of crypto related question um on a on a different topic but um uh defi dad asks how is a16z positioning for the future growth of defi um and ben maybe i could ask you to start by describing defi uh for people who aren't uh, already up to speed on it yeah yeah no and it's a i I can't, I can't decide if it's a lot to describe or a little to describe but let me kind of give it a shot um so DeFi stands for distributed finance, and you can think of it as uh, finance on the blockchain. And the kind of primary blockchain that's being used for it is a blockchain called Ethereum. Um, and kind of the way that we think about this is, you know, blockchains are a new computing platform, and they have a feature in them called trust, where, you know, you don't have to trust the government or, uh, <laughs> no offense, Mark, Facebook or a big company or, you know, the system, you just have to trust the game theoretic, you know, and uh, mathematical properties of the underlying blockchain. Um, when you have trust, you can program new things that you can program on your iPhone or your PC. Um, and two of those things are money and law. Uh, and 
we've seen uh, money with things like Bitcoin, and I think most of you are probably familiar with that. Um, but when you add law to money, um, you basically uh, can create a financial system. And DeFi is a financial system created with these kind of what we call smart contracts in Ethereum and, and money and crypto money primarily. Uh, and what can you do with it? Well, you can do all the things you can do with the kind of traditional, what we like to call analog uh, financial system. So you can borrow money, you can save money, you can exchange money for other kinds of money, you can move money overseas, you can buy insurance, you can raise money for your ideas. Um, and it's early in the days of, of distributed finance, but uh, it has really amazing and profound advantages over the old system. So, you know, the first being, there's no corruptible humans in the loop. And uh, <laughs> I think the term, the system, uh, you know, refers in large part to the financial system. So we know about that. Um, just to give you an example of no corruptible humans in the loop, it's not underwritten by the U.S. taxpayers. So if you take the risk, you take the loss. You know, there's no betting taxpayer money so you can get a big bonus like uh, the banks did in the financial crisis. That's not possible in DeFi. Um, the speed is amazing. So, you know, this GameStop thing uh, that drove everybody crazy when, you know, all the kind of online brokerages couldn't trade GameStop anymore. The reason they couldn't trade is because the price was going up so fast and it takes two days to settle the transaction. So like they literally needed enough money to deal with the price change over two days. That doesn't happen in DeFi. Everything's settled, you know, very fast in seconds, you know, like it should be. Um, there is no bias in the system. There's no racism in the system. You're not judged by uh, who you are. You're judged by what you do, you know, like how you behave. That's how the system treats you in terms of your credit and everything else and your ability to participate. Um, the markets are always open. Uh, anyone can join. <laughs> you know, you don't have to have some like long history of credit. Anybody can get into DeFi right now if you want to sign up. Um, and then finally, it's completely transparent. So you can see everything that's going on, how much money is moving around, what the collateral is, um, how risky the bets are, and so forth. And you compare that to our current system, which is massively opaque. Uh, so it's really, um, you know, another one of these just, uh, very promising breakthroughs. We're, we're in the first inning, you know, for sure. Um, but look, we're huge proponents of DeFi. Um, I think we've got, we have well over a half dozen investments in the category. And uh, look, you, you know, like, like everything we invest in, and it's funny because um, <laughs> there's all these new terms like impact investing and so forth. But like, you know, Mark and I, like when we started the firm, we didn't do it because we needed money or we needed like notoriety or anything like that. We did it because, you know, we wanted to make an impact. And this one is, um, is really a foundation of a much better, much fairer, uh, you know, much less corrupt system. And, you know, so, so it's something that like, we're, we're, we're going to be behind this for a very, very, you know, we're in this one for the long haul. We think it's going to do well, and we're going to do everything we can to help it succeed faster. Yep. yep. Fantastic. Good. Uh, good. Um, good. Let's go straight to number three. So uh, Tanya Cordry, uh, it's going into management realm now. Uh, Tanya Cordry right. asks, um, I heard Ben once talk on the need for shocking new rules when trying to transform a company, or words to that effect. What is a great shocking new rule that you have seen used successfully by a CEO in the last year uh, under under COVID and all these dramatic transformations happening around how companies are run? Yeah, so the the one that pops right into my mind, and I I you know I haven't spoken to the CEO, so I don't want to um, say the company, but basically his shocking rule was um, our product must be simple, not powerful. Um, and as soon as he set the rule, <laughs> uh, you know, his engineers went crazy. They're like, what do you mean? We should make it simple and powerful. Um, but the reason that he stated the rule that way was he wanted people to pay attention to it. And like if he had said it, we wanted to make it simple and powerful, then right. they, you know, knowing his team would have just made it powerful because that's what they always did. That's what they'd done forever. So he wanted to shock them into going, making it really, really clear that he'd take simple over powerful every single day of the week. 
Um, and uh, I think it's worked pretty well. Like it, it has, um, it has really simplified the kind of product line and the the use cases um, quite a bit. So, uh, but that's a great question. I was going to say, so in a case like that, like, does he actually get what he wants? Um, he seems to be getting what he wants. You, you know, it's kind of like, uh, <laughs> you know, Mark Zuckerberg got criticized so much for this after the fact, but he was absolutely right at the time with move fast and break things. Um, right. Because, you know, like people forget that he was a distant number two to MySpace and he was yeah. like, move fast and break things. Just fucking like, let's out. Let's just build a better product with better features like fast. And and they did it and they broke a lot of things. Um, but there was never an excuse that like you couldn't ship something out the door. And that was absolutely the right thing to do right up to the point when they you know tried to be a platform. And he changed it then, you know, which is is good. So like you think on. On those kinds of things, it just makes people really – there aren't that many things you can say as CEO that make people think every day, okay, am I really doing the right thing here? You know, Do I have the right priority? And so a rule like that is very effective when you want to break a, an, a mindset that's so entrenched and the assumptions are so deep that they don't even know they have them. Yeah. And, you know, and I mean, look, you, you know, we've both been engineers – if you tell an engineer break things, right. that's like the fucking opposite. <laughs> no, we yeah. make things. We don't break things. Yeah. What are you right. talking about? Um, and so it just makes that argument that you have in every engineering organization of when it's ready much simpler. Yeah. And so, you, you know, it, it's a very, very powerful psychological technique to break a whole organization out of a pattern that you need them to break out of. Um, you know, they, they, they always have because they are shocking <laughs> Um, you know, there's, there's a downside, but, you know, as a leader, you have to say, okay, the downside is not as bad as the upside is good. I mean, as a CEO of one of these companies, like how often can you do this kind of thing? Pull one of these, yeah, like, pull, pull one of these out, pull, put it in front of the company and kind of shock people before you start to come across as kind of over, overdoing it. Yeah, I don't think you can do a lot of them, you know, like yeah. th- th- it's a handful um, over time. Um, so it's really, you know, culture is how everybody behaves every day and like how they make every decision. You know, am I going to return a call? Am I going to spend this money? Am I staying at the four seasons? Am I staying at the red roof Inn? I'm like, like what, what am I doing? Um, and so you, it's really hard to just put up like an abstract value, like be frugal, right. You know, have each other's back. (laughs) <laughs> you right, know, like, right, right, right. What, what does that actually mean in actuality and reality every single day? That's what you have to communicate. Yeah. And so yeah. there aren't that many behaviors that you can program into your organization. Um, so you should try and overdo it. But like it is a it is a powerful technique, you know, when you need it. I guess Dave Packard's, I guess, legendary version of this probably was the you're you were allowed to break the door to supply closet down with the fire axe on the weekend if you need the parts yeah right exactly exactly like what fire axe <laughs> i thought we were a computer company you know i thought we were a technology company well, what do i know a fire axe for right so it's it's that kind of thing where like people are going to remember it people are going to repeat it it's going to be part of the company lore um everybody like anytime there's an argument somebody in the meeting will go well zuck said move fast and break things right. <laughs> you know and it's like okay well i guess we're shipping right exactly Good. Okay, good. And then fourth one, uh, Ben, for you um, to start with. So uh, Lenny Bogdanoff asks, um, and this is a little bit of a complex question, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably word it a couple different ways. So can you share the underused levers uh, today's uh, VC-funded startups uh, have at their disposal to attract early employees beyond just salary? Um, so, for example, um, uh, using um, RSUs earlier as opposed to stock options. So that employees are in the money faster um, or uh, having long exercise periods for people's options longer than normal um, or having, you know, backloaded vesting schedules where people get more stock. But, you know, it's more backloaded towards the later years or, you know, where the vesting is extended. So basically, um, use of the various financial instruments and details uh, and mechanisms around compensation and incentives uh, to try to get sort of a differentiated edge on um, uh, on both recruiting and, and on retention. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let, let me just kind of start, you know, at a philosophical level. I, I, I think it's it's really challenging to get anything more than a marginal benefit out of these financial ideas. So, um, and this is going to sound, you're going to criticize me for being old fashioned, but look, I think the things that really work and that, you know, if you look at the great companies from, you know, Airbnb to, to Facebook, to Databricks, the things that really work are mission and culture. So is this something I can really get behind and I want to put my career into and is this a place that I want to work? You know, if you're strong on those two, um, that's by far the most effective thing that you can do. Um, and then, you know, the, the compensation is much more on the margin. So, like, let me just kind of take kind of two of the questions. So, you know, using RSUs early, um, I would say the challenge with it is is twofold. One is uh, RSUs are kind of a function of the market cap of your company. Mm -hmm. And so you're literally competing with companies who are monopolies that are worth a trillion dollars. <laughs> and so if you're going your RSU to their RSU, you're going to need a hell of a lot more RSUs to get the same effect. Um, and so that's a tough one. Whereas an option, you know, you can give more options out, uh, you know, and, you know, with the, with the same dilution and you and you can at least have the dream of more upside if people believe in the mission. So I think doing and then, of course, there's technical issues with RSUs earlys, which is that you basically get forced to go public. Um, so that's tricky. Uh, long exercise periods, I think, also are tricky in that they're in a way they're attractive to employees, but they're attractive because the employee knows they can leave. <laughs> right. I can walk away before the value is create or the value is realized um, and I still get paid. So, you know, you, you know, you can say, well, that's a fairer way to do it, but it doesn't necessarily help you with retention, I don't think. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that um, and th there's a lot of things that people have tried, you know, with I, I've seen people try back. Loading the vesting, I think that is hard um, to be competitive in recruiting when you have that. You know, people, uh, I've seen people try it and then back off it. It depends where you're located. If you're located in Silicon Valley, it's harder to do that than if you're in, say, L.A. I think um, Snap had some success with that. Uh, but I think that the other thing that I would say is that if you can retain, so you have some amount of equity that you can use to incentivize employees I think too many companies give too much equity out on the initial offer and not enough on the follow-on um, incentives. And so I think that if I were, you know, to be CEO again, I'd like more on the follow-on incentives because you don't know who's good when you hire them. Like, you know who's smart, but you don't know who's going to give you the effort, who's going to be like the kind of person that, you know, brings the sunshine to work as opposed to the rain. <laughs> um, right. And so you kind of want to be able to hit those people after the fact uh, when you know those things. Um, but it's, it's, it's a tricky business. We haven't seen a, a magic trick where somebody's got some method that, you know, enables them to, to win every uh, employee. So is, is the right, so is the, is the right approach then just sort of literal data driven table stakes for comp and then focus on, on mission and culture? Or is there are there things you do think are working on, on the margin? I, I, I mean, I, I do think that like whatever you do should jibe with your philosophy. So like Reed uh, Hastings has a great new book called uh, No Rules where he goes through some of the things they do at Netflix. So like his philosophy is you should just pay people at market. So they just mark to market all the time on offers um, and they don't pay any bonuses because he thinks bonuses – are uh, put you in a box because they're tied to some, you know, some incentive that you, you that you do at time point in time A, you know, when you might want them to do something else at point in time B, and so no bonuses, you know, in his kind of view of the world. So that's a kind of different philosophy that goes with how he thinks his company should be run. Um, so I think you should customize it to your kind of management philosophy. But I think if you, I don't think there's 
it's hard to get competitive edge out of compensation because you're dealing with the, you know, you're dealing with the money you have and the equity you have, and you can put different flavors on it, but they're, they're not that different. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still money and equity and, you know, like some people have more money and more equity than you. <laughs> and, you know, unless you're whatever, unless you're Amazon, then you have more money and equity than anybody, I guess, or whoever, <laughs> you know, is the most valuable company in the world. But that that's kind of the, the you, you just have to deal with the reality. There's no easy way out. Now, look, you can have, on the other hand, you can have very differentiated mission. You can have very differentiated culture. Right. And, and so I think that's a place to focus if you're talking about recruiting and, and retention. Okay, great. Okay, second half, 732, heading in <coughs> home stretch. Right. So uh, Achuda uh, Anikol asks, um, it's easier to time the markets rather than spending time in the markets. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll, it's easier, we'll, not necessarily more profitable. Yeah, well, we'll so we're going to this. I, this, is a, this is a great setup. This is a great question. Great setup for a question. And I, I very, uh, very cleverly worded. And we'll, we'll, we'll I'm sure, argue, argue about that. Um, uh, what and how do you get insights to stay for the long term uh, in a market, you know, pursuing an activity, a company, an investment, uh, despite what the market says in the short term, you know, presumably meaning the market is shitting all over it in the short term. And it's 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 one of those things, you know, it's like every, you know, basically every good investing book says, you know, buy when, you know, buy, you know, some form. Everybody says they don't market time, but everybody says, look, you know, buy when everybody else is selling, buy when there's blood in the streets, buy when things are out of favor. And I just like very few things are less fun. Than doing that, <laughs> yeah, you, you you do have to realize you're going to be called stupid a lot. Yeah. Yes, enormously. Um, so um, so let me in a Ben. I'm curious what you think. So I'll take a take a swing at this, and then curious what you think. So I I would I think I would challenge the premise of the question um, to see what you think of this, which is I don't I don't think it actually is easier to time the markets than it is to spend time in the markets, and the reason for that is I've just seen at least with tech, at least with what we do, it's just like. It's so easy to be too early, um, yeah. and it's so easy to be too late. And you just see examples of both of those all the time. And so, and and there's sort of this like I thought Peter Thiel did a great job of kind of describing this dynamic that gets, is at the core of this, which is the, he, he sort of separate. He sort of says basically it's like there, there's this concept of first to market, right? So the company that kind of gets into market first and presumably therefore has the opportunity to take it before other people wake up. And then there's this sort of somewhat unrelated concept um, of the company that's last to market. Uh, you know, by which he means the the, the company basically that's going to like basically foreclose the potential for there to be any additional companies after them. And, and last la- last to market is not necessarily first to market, uh, although yeah. it could be. But last to market is the company that actually goes and like soaks up the market share and basically just like you know takes down the market. Uh, yeah. And then the, ne- the next company comes along, it's just simply too late. And so the too early configuration generally is if you're getting involved in the company that's first to market, but not last to market. And the too late configuration is one in which you, on the other side, miss the company that's last to market and you're involved in the company after that. Right. Yeah. Um, well, that's, just, yeah, go ahead. that's why being a venture capitalist is easier than being an entrepreneur. <laughs> You've just described it. Yeah, although, yeah, it is, I mean, it is it is in the sense that, you know, VCs have a portfolio of bets. So when one of them yeah. is either too early or too late, it doesn't work. It, it still is painful as a VC, right? When you're in either when you're either too early or too late, it, you know, for that for that individual investment, for sure. Right. Oh, yeah. No, no, it's it's no, it's no question. It's it's painful, but at least you don't lose everything. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> Having well, I guess I lost almost everything, not quite almost everything. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just like, and then I guess I'd add the other thing I always say about timing. So the other thing I always kind of say about timing when these topics come up is like timing, like on the one hand, as an especially as an entrepreneur who's like really close into a market, like on the one hand, you're in an excellent position to judge timing because like, you know, the most out of everybody in terms of like all the dynamics, the technology and the market and the customers and all this stuff, because you're like, you know, you're really sweating all the details and working this stuff hard. So in theory, you should be able to get the timing right better than anybody else. But, you know, at least from my experience, the other side of that is like, you get too close to it, right? And you get kind of, and, and you know, it's just yeah. like, say, like entrepreneurs live in the future. And so yeah. you have this- It's really of, easy to be early, yeah. Yeah, you have this vision of like, okay, the world is gonna be a certain way. And like that vision is quite possibly correct, but it's just like, it may be wrong in the timing, which is to say, it's just not gonna be like that this year or next year, it's gonna be like that in 10 years. Right or twenty yep. years, and I mean, you know, even you know, you see this with big companies. All you know, app just you know, Apple again, most one of the most successful companies in the world. But you know, 
you know, they had an iPad that didn't work 20 years before the one that did work, right? Called the Newton. Right, literally, <laughs> literally, it didn't work at all. <laughs> right, literally 20, 20 years early, and they they when they after the iPad was a success, um, they, they actually and nobody ever quite knows if they did this deliberately or not, but they did it. I suspect they did. They had a uh, specific uh, TV commercial for the iPad in like twenty eleven or twenty twelve, and it was clear that it was a big hit. And it was like it was basically like a scene for scene remake of an Apple Newton TV commercial from like nineteen ninety. <laughs> right like showing yeah, off yeah. all the same like features of the device and the same like camera angles and the same you know basically value proposition and it's just like you know what what was the difference you know 20 years right um yeah. and so like if apple of all companies can be off by 20 years right um and you know every, every big company kind of has had this experience um it, you know it's just it's it's just really like devilishly hard to get the timing exactly right so at least i don't I guess I would just say as an entrepreneur, like, I, I don't know that I ever felt like I had some special skill on timing. Um, I, I think what I did have a special skill on, may, maybe, right, was sort of the original idea, which was, you know, that it was going to happen at some point. And then, you know, simply just the, like, literally, it's, uh, as, he, as he worded the question, um, you know, spending time in the market, like, basically, you know, getting in the market and then digging in hard, right, and trying to be in the market for as long as possible to be, to be able to actually catch it when it worked. Um, yep. Yeah. So anyway, and, yeah, and by the way, yeah, that's a, that's the thing. I mean, you know, going back to Coinbase, like that was the thing that I, I would say Brian, the uh, founding CEO, did such a marvelous job on is he was too early, right? Um, and but he he sat on his money um, and didn't and, and was really really disciplined about not growing the company for years uh, to get over to the other side. Yeah, I, I'll actually expand on. So now, now that the company is public and a huge success, yeah. uh, I'll, I can add a little color on that. So I, I just recently formally joined the board, but um, you know our, our partners uh, Chris and, and, and Katie worked on it for a lot, a lot more than I did early on. But I, I did go, I, I did tag along to board meetings, uh, you know, for the for the first few years uh, on and off. And um, you know, I will tell you, like there were there were stretches in there in the so-called you know crypto winters, um, where at least I just I'll admit it, like it felt to me like we were going to lose the company. Um, yeah, like it, yeah, yeah. it felt to me, we we're going to lose the company, and not as a consequence of anything the company was doing, but just it felt like the market had died. Um, yeah. It's just like you know, the market had spoken, and like crypto was going to happen someday, maybe, but like it wasn't going to happen in like the time horizon for the. And, and, and the reason I say that is like you know, any given startup has like some time horizon over which they have to get something to work, or just at some point, you know, they just run out of money, or <laughs> the people quit, right? There, you know, there is yep. a there is a statute of limitations on these things. Um, and, and so there were these board meetings, you know, that were very characteristic of companies that we have been involved in that have died, which is just like, okay, like what's happened since the, since the last board meeting, like nothing, right? Like nothing, like nothing has developed. The market hasn't changed at all. And like for people who've been through startups, like that is not a good sign. And so, it, and, and, and I, I will, I, I will say like Brian never wavered, like Brian was like, you know, heads down hundred percent all the way through never, at least if he, if he ever had a moment of doubt, like he never showed it. Um, and yeah. so, you know, and it, which made it easy to support him. Um, but I, I would say like his level of sort of quiet determination was like, you know, I would say way beyond typically what we experience in the case where like the market just like falls over and dies that way. Um, yeah. and so yeah, it, yeah. It, it is a great <laughs> illustration better what you're talking about. Of course, we don't know what was going on inside him, but yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's feeling a lot worse than he showed. Long, long nights of the soul, um, yeah. as, they, as they say. So, yeah, so so I don't know. I guess I would say, look, if, if, if you have the special skill, you know, to be able to time these things, I, I'm all in favor of it. I, I think mo most of us don't. And I think most of us, it, it's actually uh, back to the original question. I think it's actually spending time in the markets. That's actually the thing that you can do. Um, and yeah. then you basically just like grit your teeth and, and look, you know. Just because nothing's happening in the market doesn't mean that you can't do things to improve yourself, right? And your company and your product. And so, you know, you just, you just, you, you know, you keep working and you keep grinding and you keep making things better and you keep coming up with new ideas. Um, and then sometimes you get the timing right and sometimes you really don't. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. Okay. And, so and when you do, yeah. you think you're a genius. And when you don't, yeah. you think you're the biggest loser in the world. So it is tough. Well, that's the other thing that happens is like just because somebody doesn't get it right one time doesn't mean they want the next time. And then, by the way, yeah. vice versa, getting it right once does not mean that you have the magic touch. <laughs> nope. And sometimes ways it uh, messes you up. Yeah. Right. Because it just seems like it should be obvious. Right. It should be just like, oh, my next thing is going to work just like this. And it's like, well, um, maybe it'll take another 20 years. Um, and then uh, another actual unrelated but question involving uh, the, time, the passage of time. So um, uh, Max Lindenberger asks, uh, this is a very topical question. Um, so with Operation Warp Speed, which was the U.S. government program for the COVID vaccines, 
uh, proving that it is possible to develop, approve, and distribute novel uh, medical treatments quickly. Um, and you know, just to refresh people, uh, Moderna had the COVID vaccine two days after they received the email of the genome for the for the virus, um, and then the vaccine itself was approved and deployed within what was it, ten months or eleven months? Um, which was yeah, 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 eleven months, yeah, eleven months start to finish, which was far faster. The the two previous uh, fast uh, deliver uh, 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 execution of vaccine programs in sort of recent history was uh, the Ebola vaccine about 10 years ago took five years from start to finish versus 11 months. And the mumps vaccine in the 1950s with a much lighter regulatory burden uh, set of requirements took, took four years. And so it's an acceleration. It's like a four to five X acceleration off of what everybody I think generally thought was possible. So just like a, a great like scientific achievement. Um, so with that, uh, basically proving that it is possible to develop, approve and distribute novel treatments quickly, what do you think are the chances that the approval process for biotech treatments will be rethought in a post-COVID world? And so, yeah, so this is something we've been thinking a lot about in our, in our biotech practice. And so I'll just, I'll sketch out a couple thoughts um, on this. Um, so one is, um, look, there, there is, I think, actually considerable reason for optimism on this topic, and specifically optimism that new and novel uh, treatments might get uh, actually developed and approved much more quickly um, in the future. And, and one is, is, is actually just simply straight, straight up the success of the Moderna and Pfizer platforms. Um, so the, the success of the mRNA technology uh, that powers those vaccines, um, is the, the, that is a new kind of general purpose technology. Uh, for developing vaccines and also uh, potentially therapies. Um, and the scientists working on those platforms uh, believed that now that, you know, and those platforms were first used for a vaccine for COVID. Um, and so COVID is the first vaccine developed with, with those technologies. Um, those scientists are now, I would say, quite optimistic that they'll be able to develop vaccines and then ultimately therapies uh, for various things uh, based, on, uh, based, on that, uh, based on that platform. And, you know, if not as fast, then at least, you know, much more quickly than has been the case in the past. So like, we, we do have like an actual potential platform breakthrough in biotechnology, which is, you know, which is, uh, you know, quite possibly a very big deal. Um, and then, you know, look, in general, if you talk to, you know, scientists working in lots of areas of biomedicine, they will tell you, you know, they are quite fired up about the general possibilities of things like genomics and machine learning applied to drug discovery and, you know, new ways to do trials and, and, and um, you know, to, uh, clinical trials and so forth. So, so there's some reason for optimism. And then look, just like having a, such a clear success case, uh, you know, is itself inspiring. Um, and so, you know, I guess I, I would say like, my, you know, my hope is that we, you know, we, we kind of come out of this inspired and kind of want to challenge, you know, kind of ourselves as, as a society to kind of have these, th these things happen faster. Um, you know, I think that the, the, the concern, the reason that this wouldn't happen, that nothing would change coming out of this, and we'll go back to the relatively, you know, slow and I would say slowing pace of development of new medical therapies and, and, and cures and vaccines uh, going forward would just be basically the same thing that got us uh, into the, the slow position to start with, which is sort of generally what's called the precautionary principle, um, or which um, there's a, a, a economist, uh, uh, Bastiat, uh, uh, who uh, described this phenomenon called the seen versus the unseen, um, which is basically like if you develop a new therapy or vaccine um, and it has uh, bad side effects, you know, right, which could include people getting either grievously harmed or, or actually killed, um, uh, you know, you, you see those bad side effects and the regulator that approved that therapy or vaccine is now in a great deal of trouble. And, you know, the press will go crazy and, you know, people will get fired and all kinds of bad things. There'll be lawsuits and all kinds of bad things will happen. Um, what you don't see, right, the unseen are all the people who are suffering and dying because you don't have a cure, right, or vaccine or therapy to market that maybe you could have had you move faster, right? So every day people die from, you know, lots of different, you know, diseases and lots of different viruses and lots of different things that, you know, maybe in theory we could develop cures for faster uh, if we were able, if we we're willing to take more risk. Um, and so, you know, generally Western medicine has been run for the last at least, you know, 40 years under, you know, kind of what's called the precautionary principle where we have prioritized the risk of the seen versus the risk of the unseen. Um, by the way, right, interestingly, the COVID vaccine itself was actually an example of that, right? Which is, if you just think for a moment, it's just like, okay, there was like a little, you know, kind of thing embedded in how I, I set up this topic, which is like we, the Moderna vaccine, they had it two days in. Right. And so they had a working vaccine in January of 2020. Like they had the working vaccine. Now, did, you know, did they fully know they had the vaccine? Could they prove that it was effective? Could they prove that it was safe and all that? You know, not not to not to modern standards. Right. And I'm not saying that they should have just like simply rolled it out on the basis of what they knew at the time. But the fact is they had it. Um, and so the, the thought experiment, you know, to be run, which I think is a very legitimate thought experiment, is 
you know, as a society, would we have been better off if they had, you know, speed run the trials even faster uh, and rolled the thing out, you know, after five or six months instead of 11 or 12 months? Um, and, you know, could we in retrospect have saved on the order, if you just look at the math, we could have saved in theory on the order of another 300 or 400,000 lives in the process. And, and, and then from a societal standpoint, it's like, how much risk do we want to take of having a virus roll out that maybe doesn't work or has side effects as compared to the 300 or 400,000 people who did die in the second half of last year who maybe could have been vaccinated <laughs> and maybe could have survived, right? So, so yep. in, re re in retrospect, right. that, uh, going backwards in time, that's an easy decision. Going forward, exactly. probably a little more tricky, yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's a trade-off. Like, it's a real trade-off of risk, and there's risk in both directions. <laughs> and so that, that's why I go through this, which is basically, I keep, I keep using this word societal, like, I would say this is a question for us as a society, and I think it's a question for all of us um, to really think hard about um, because it, you know, because like who, who implements these policies, right, our elected representatives, right, and the people that they hire and fire at the, at the regulators. It's like, well, we, you know, we have a choice to make as a society, right? Do, do we want these things to happen faster with more risk of damage going to the quote unquote scene, but potentially, you know, solving problems that are being suffered by the unseen? If we want that, like, I think we could have that. Um, but we would, as a society, need to decide that we want that, and then we would need to make that clear through the politicians we elect and through the policies that we encourage them to adopt. And I, and I, and I, and I go through that to say, like, I think that's the actual question in front of us. And I, I don't know where it's going to shake out, but I think we should directly confront it. Yeah, and I think that it's um, becoming more urgent because the nature of the platforms are changing. You know, we, we've, we're kind of coming from this coarse-grained chemical model of biology where the vaccines in the past were, you know, we were basically growing a disease and injecting you with a small amount to create a reaction um, to this new technology, which is, you know, we sequence a genome and we design print mRNA that's very specifically designed to create the defense that you need. Um, so the risk profiles of the old techniques and the new techniques are very different, but the approval processes are the same. That's right. Yeah. And so I think it's a fantastic question. And I think I think this is honestly something that every individual, like every voter should think about. Um, and then, uh, you know, depending on where you think the balance of, you know, of kind of, uh, of, uh, of, of risks and rewards lie, um, it, definitely worth uh, we're thinking hard about. Um, Sam uh, Werber, next topic. Um, dialogue on the future of remote work uh, seems to disregard its potential negative effects on young people entering the workforce. Uh, who haven't met coworkers or gotten a sense of, of a company's culture? How can fully remote or hybrid work models accommodate young workers who need to meet people? And I, I actually have thoughts on this, but Ben, why, why don't you start on this one? Yeah, so I, I think that is um, a very insightful question um, because if you just kind of operate the way that you did before, but remotely, you know, and substitute Zoom for meetings, then that becomes. Um, a really fundamental issue, I think. And, you know, one of the kind of, I would say, head fakes about how people are operating during COVID is, um, <clears throat> you know, it's for a short duration. So you, you don't kind of see its effects over a longer period of time as new employees enter the organization, develop, become part of the culture, get promoted, all those kinds of things. Um, having said that, uh, I think the, the right answer isn't to throw the baby out with the bathwater, um, but to kind of like, what is the new operating model? And, you know, what we've done, I, I can just say kind of how we've been thinking about it at the firm. Um, one thing is, yeah, onboarding has got to be far more intentional than in a kind of a time when everybody can show up in the office. So one of the things that we do, for example, is like in order to open a rec, you need to have a plan for everybody that new hire is going to meet, you know, in their first week, because uh, you're not going to bump into them in the hallway and you need to get those meetings scheduled and, um, you know, kind of work that kind of thing into the plan. And then, you know, the way that uh, we design offsites is similarly intentional to make sure that we can mix it up and, and that, you know, kind of we can cross pollinate managers across the the kind of face-to-face -face interactions and these kinds of things so it's a i think you have to redesign you know if you're going to do remote work you have to design in mechanisms to enable people to kind of get oriented into the community um and then kind of stay 
you know, stay in touch as it goes. Uh, but um, I'll, I'll give it to you, Mark. Yeah, so I think that's obviously all, all I agree with that. I, and then I would add maybe a bigger picture thing or, or maybe ask a bigger question, bigger picture question, Ben, uh, which is sort of like, you know, basically like we've had this economic model, we've had this system for the last whatever hundred or, you know, arguably maybe even <laughs> yep. thousand years, right? Yep. Where basically if you're a young person and you want to make your way in the world and you want access to like top flight economic opportunities, right? You, you move from where you grew up and you move to the big city. Um, and you separate yourself from the sort of social, sort of emotional, you know, context, your friends, family, community. Um, and you end up in the city and you probably start out in, you know, traditionally a small apartment and then, but, uh, and then you, and you devote yourself to your work. And then maybe at some point you, you know, often quite, quite often like meet, meet a potential spouse actually at work, um, right. Or at another nearby company. Right. Um, and then, you know, at some point you, you form, you know, the quote unquote nuclear family, and then you, you know, you continue to work, you know, basically through your life and live in that city and maybe, you know, visit home once in a while or, or whatever. Um, like, you know, that, that, that whole thing. So, you know, that whole thing is like a relatively modern artifact of the sort of centralization of economic opportunity in cities. Um, it, it, I would say, or let's say some social observers have said, some social critics have said, um, that it leads to, you know, potentially like an overtraining on the role of work, uh, in, in our lives, which is to say, not that work isn't important is to say, um, that your workplace also becomes your social context. Um, yep. right. To sort of a profound extent. And, and, you know, anybody who's like worked, I actually had this experience when I was an intern at IBM in Austin in, in, in 1990, which, you know, was like, they were like, you know, in a big company context, there were like, you know, 6,000 people in my division. And then there was another, you know, building next door with another 6,000 people in the next division. And there were, I don't know, 30,000 IBM employees or something in, in, in Austin at the time. And it was like a company town and you could basically live and work in Austin for years and years and never meet anybody who didn't work for IBM. Right. And so you had that. And anybody who works at one of these, you know, historically at one of these campuses like Google or whatever has a sort of a very similar experience or people in a startup have a very similar experience because they get just so bonded in, into their teams. And so it's like your your work becomes like the entire center of your universe. And then it becomes like your entire social context. Um, and then it becomes like it, it does become like quite literally like, you know, among other things like the dating pool, because it's like, where, you know, where else are you going to meet people, um, you know, with shared interests other than at work? Um, and you know, who else are you going to like hang out with on weekends and who else are you going to like go on vacation with and so forth. And so from that standpoint, like failure to socially integrate into the workplace in sort of the, you know, pre COVID model was like a very big lifestyle issue, right? Like if you didn't really bond into your work environment, like it didn't just affect, you know, your profession, you know, the future of your career, it might have affect your entire life. Like it may, might just make your life suck. Right. Cause it's just like, you're, you're so reliant on this workplace experience for kind of everything in your life. Um, and so I guess one possibility, Ben, is there a possibility that basically in a more remote environment, maybe people, right, are, as, as, as people are able to kind of separate where they live and where they work, um, you know, basically, are people going to be as emotionally bonded into their workplaces as they've historically been? Like, should we have that same expectation? And then, by the way, would it be good or bad for, for, for those to actually separate? And I, and I could argue, like, for tech startups, that might well be bad, which is it might just simply reduce, you know, kind of the coherence of the culture. Uh, and make people, you know, more likely to rotate companies. But you could also argue that it's good, which is maybe you just have, you know, the ability to draw people in more places and, you know, that overcomes whatever weakening of social bonds, you know, kind of flow from it. So I'd be curious what, what you think of that. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I, like, I, I think that the social bonds um, to the work are important because, like, at the end of the day, good people, good companies do good work, um, you know, for each other. Um, you know, it's so much of, you know, so much of what produces the really high quality isn't, um, you know, a bunch of lone wolves assembled um, and programmed to do what they're supposed to do, you know, with carefully laid out objectives. It's kind right. of people coming together and, and uh, figuring something out together. And so it's a deeper relationship than, then I think that would imply. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, to your other point, it is like I could imagine a better world where, you know, you can be as connected to the people that you grew up with as to the kind of new people that you meet. And then everybody kind of, you know, the benefit of that is everybody grows together. Um, I often lament, you know, I talk to my old friends that I grew up with a lot and, and it does feel like, and I'm sure you have experienced a lot, like I've left them behind in some way, you know, like I've been vaulted into this, uh, 
universe that's much bigger and broader than you know with what they're involved in and you know they don't have any idea what i'm talking about whereas if i lived there um i could bring them along and maybe they'd have more opportunities as well so so i think there's a lot to that Good. So really great question and really great topic. So th thank you for that. And then I've got a fantastic final question, but it is too uh, complicated for the last three minutes. So I'm going to punch it to next right. week, but it's, it's the question I'm most excited about. So. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good one. Yeah, we de definitely save that one. We will save that one for next week. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the answer is, but I know what I hope the answer is. <laughs> okay, good. We'll just uh, encourage people to tune in next week for that one. And then... Um, Let's close on our new tradition of book uh, of the week. Um, and so, Ben, uh, uh, go first, please. Yeah, so my book of the week is a, it's actually a book I read a while ago, but I think it's really relevant for the time, which is a book called Writing My Wrongs by uh, my friend Shaka Senghor. And it's kind of a, about his journey. So, you know, he went to prison for murder. He did commit the murder. Um, and he was in prison for 19 years. Uh and he's come out, he's been out over a decade now, and he's a best-selling author. He does great work. He's, uh, you know, was executive director of the uh, uh, Anti-Recidivism Coalition. He, you know, was a fellow at the MIT Media Lab. He's, you know, had an amazing career. I mean, he's just a brilliant guy overall. But the thing that I think is relevant there's a few things relevant about you. One thing that's relevant about the book is like, a, you know, his management skills are amazing. So I, I learned a, a lot from him on that. Um, but I think more importantly, you know, the guy who went to jail was 100% a murderer. Um, he was definitely a dangerous person in society. Uh, but the person who came out of jail was a completely different guy. Uh, you know, he had he had changed himself a lot. And I think that, you know, when we think about it, you know, like most of us are not the same person we were in high school. Um, like we're just like a completely different human being that would make very few of the same decisions that we made then. But I think that as a society, we've kind of forgotten that uh, people are redeemable and uh, not, you know, the worst thing that they do in their lives isn't necessarily indicative of their behavior for their whole life. Not to say that like people shouldn't go to the jail. They should go to jail, you know, if they're a menace to society or, or what have you. You 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 know, you can't have them killing innocent people and all that kind of thing. On the other hand, you know, um just because somebody said something that was, you know, whatever racist or somebody uh did something bad or so forth, that doesn't mean that's what they would say now, <laughs> um, particularly if it's 20 years later or 10 years later. And I think we've gone back to this kind of Salem witch trial, uh, scarlet letter type society where anything you do is just people try and mark you for life. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things that you do, they might not even be true. It's just that like somebody on Twitter said it was true or, or that kind of thing. And so, uh, you know, the fact that somebody who, was a pretty hard criminal. I mean, like he was a very, very serious criminal. He had been kind of, you know, in the crime game since he was 13 years old. Uh, could, you know, emerge as somebody completely different is just a really good reminder that, um, you know, we're not necessarily the worst moment that we've ever had. Yeah, somebody said, I forget who, somebody said our, our current civil religion that we kind of all live by um, uh, yeah, is characterized by we definitely have the concept of sin, but we may be losing the concept of redemption. Yeah, yes, we've lost redemption. <laughs> we have plenty of sin. We've added a lot of sin, uh, but we do not have redemption anymore. Yep. Um, great, good. Okay, and then uh, my suggestion, so I think last week, if I recall correctly, or last time we did this, I suggested Medici money, um, which was uh, sort of on uh, this whole yeah. general theme we have on like NFTs and and crypto. So I wanted to add one another book actually on on a theme like that because this has been this is such an intense period for kind of crypto and the evolution of, of finance. Um, so great book title, Millionaire, um, is the title of the book. The subhead is the philanderer, gambler, and duelist uh, who invented modern finance. <laughs> Um, <laughs> as you would expect as you would expect uh, uh did not work for a 2021 era investment bank was this is somebody from a long time ago um the book is by the way written by uh, janet gleason g-l-e-e-s-o-n um 
So the book, it's one of my favorite books. It's a short book. It's really good. Um, it is the biography of a character uh, named John Law, L-A-W, which is actually a quite ironic name, given how he lived his life. Um, <laughs> and uh, he was uh, he lived about 350 years ago. Um, oh, so this wow. Is like, this is like Louis. Yeah, it's like Louis the 15th. Uh, kind of territory. Um, in yeah. So he was, he was Scottish by background, but uh, ended up in France. And um, he basically, he's credited essentially with inventing the concept of paper money um, or, you know, basically what's now known as, as, as fiat money. Um, and, you know, and it's very specifically like the idea of money that was sort of disconnected from like a literal basically basis in, in, a, in a precious metal. Right. So as opposed to like, you know, a gold based currency or a, a silver based right. currency. Right. And so he, he had this basically this kind of crazy observation. 350 years ago and he said look you know basically he's like look we don't have to like it's basically like we you know up until then the, the amount of money in the financial system was basically the, like the amount of gold that you had the amount of silver that you had and if there was yeah if there were basically like transactions that people wanted to do or like you know money that people wanted to pay or you know trade that needed to ha- wanted to happen that was beyond that amount of money then then those financial transactions simply couldn't happen um and so basically like the development of these like increasingly large national economies of that era you know, and, and, you know, you know, global trade and so forth, which was actually, you know, quite, 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 uh, quite actually flourishing back then, um, you know, basically was just, you know, growth was just constantly being choked off by literally a, a lack of supply of money. And so he said, look, like, and, and his basic theory, like there's lots of theories on what money is, but like his basic theory was money, money exists so that people can trade so that they can exchange goods and services. And so he's like, look, like, let, basically, let's just like make up an intermediate, basically form of exchange that people can use to trade more. Um, and, um, you know, the book is incredibly vivid and dramatic. I mean, this was, this was, by the way, this at the time was like a crazy idea. Um, and he was like, he had a very hard time finding anybody who would, who would, um, who would, uh, buy into it. The, the, the king of uh, France at the time, uh, the, was in like, France was in like dire financial straits at the time. So he managed to convince one of the, one of the French kings to actually embrace this thing and launch the, the first paper currency. And it immediately led to a massive monetary and stock market bubble. Like basically overnight, <laughs> like everybody, of, of course, right? Everybody was just like, "Oh my God, infinite money!" Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and then you know, followed by like basically catastrophe. Um, yeah. And it was, I think, it was the Mississippi bubble um, at the time that uh, expanded yeah. uh, enormously and then and then crashed hard. Um, and uh, John Law actually ended up getting run out of France, um, basically uh, yeah. uh, fearing for his life. Um, and uh, the things did not go that well for him after that, but. Um, you know, he, he did. He is one of the reasons why basically, you know, basically like paper money then, you know, took off over the course of the next 300, 350 years yeah. and, and was and was incredibly, you know, sort of widely adopted. And at least, you know, main, mainstream, econ- you know, there's disputes on this to this day, but mainstream economists will tell you that like this breakthrough is really what led to this sort of massive, massive explosion of economic growth, you know, basically in the in the century sense, like without without paper money, if we were still on the gold standard, we, we would all just be living in a much smaller economy and therefore a much poorer world. Um, yeah. And so it's – and by the way, you know, those, those give you an idea. It's got some echoes of the uh, transition from fiat to crypto, yeah. 100%. So this is exactly yeah. right. So, so what you have now – this is what is so striking to me when you read this history because all of the super responsible people 350 years ago were like, you're out of your fucking mind, right? We, we know what money is. It's anchored to gold. Like how dare you have this like new idea of what money is? How crazy is this? How much risk are you running? And by the way, oh my God, look at this bubble and crash. It proves that you were, you know, wrong, malicious, venal, and an idiot, right? And they were, yeah. and they were like completely confident in that. Right? Was it Magic the Gathering? Yeah, exactly. Mount Gox. <laughs> exactly. And so, and so, literally, what's happened now? So fast forward now, right? And you've got that. Same, I won't name names other than <clears throat> Paul Krugman. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, ha- you have people in like equivalent, you know, positions of authority today who have the exact same like lock in on basically paper money being the only way to, you know, paper, non-digital money being the only way to do things basically because they believe that it's been proven that it's the best of all possible systems. Well, and, they and they're using like, the right. exact same arguments that, that yes. you just described against paper money. <laughs> yes. Yes. Against, against crypto. And so. And, and look, this you know this doesn't prove that you know who's right, who's wrong, whatever. We'll see. You know, I mean, obviously we we know what we believe, but like we'll see what happens yeah. in the fullness of time. But like, it, it does re- you you do feel like you're reading like oh my god, it's it's literally the equivalent of the crypto revolution 350 years ago with the exact same dynamic, with the exact same you know uh, yeah. fear mongering, with the exact same you know panics. Like 
the, the entire thing is so similar. And, and, and then, and then, you know, look at the characteristics, like, you know, this guy was not like whatever, a Harvard economist 350 years ago, you know, yeah, he yeah, was this, of this, course this, not. Yeah, no, he's, he's, right. he's a tinker. He's a, he's a, he's a hustler. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. An yeah, entrepreneur. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Um, and then the, the title, the kicker is the title of the book is millionaire because the economies were so cons- until he came up with paper money, uh, economies were so constrained in growth that actually the term millionaire was not ever really used as a term because it was so hard to ever have it literally to ever have a million of anything. Um, yeah, of, yeah, of the previous the, forms. Of- yeah, yeah. The transaction friction would stop you alone. Yeah. Yeah, you just you get to people just get stalled out and in their in their in their in their business careers and so you know relatively quickly, um, and so um, you know he he really unleashed an entirely basically new new level of growth is is is, you know, is, is now kind of the the widely accepted history. So anyway, it's 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 very yes very inspiring, lots of historical echoes, and I, I think people will will enjoy it a great deal. All right, awesome, awesome. Good. Well, um, I guess that concludes the show. Uh, just like to thank everybody who came up and helped with the room, Sriram, DL, Jules, Felicia, Laura. Um, we appreciate that. And uh, thank you all for coming. And we will see you next week. Good. See you all next week. Okay. Have a great thank week. you. Bye.